60s because it's a book that was written thousands of years ago and is so relevant for America today. I thought, this is the book for today. And Solomon gave us this wisdom that, man, I just thought, I think about people I know in the community in my neighborhood, and I'm like, this is the wisdom they need from God. It's so relevant today. And, and God's wisdom is just this eternal truth and bringing that out and bringing it to application into how we use uh, social media into our friendships. Man, it's really served us well. So I'm excited to hear how this book ends this morning and the point of it all. So thank you because you could have you gone with Revelation, something you've been in for years and you put a lot of hard work into Ecclesiastes to serve us. And I know that, that you took the hard path to really do what was best for us. And so that's an example of servanthood, and uh, I appreciate all your hard work in serving us. So thanks for doing that. Can we welcome Mr. Whitaker once again as he preaches to us? Well, man, what a joy. I, um, I am a pastor, which means I have a heart for people I care for people, and I feel like I need to pastor my team for a minute, Fuji. Um, look, I care for people. I care for the kids, okay? And um, Fuji, first of all, thank you for welcoming Jack and Jude and I into your hearts and onto your team. As Abraham Lincoln tweeted just the other day, once a Fuji, always a Fuji, all right? Now, we, guys, 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 we were doing awesome, but we came in fourth place. Um, that's not okay. <laughs> so we're not okay. All right. Next year, no more Mr. Nice Fuji. All right. So just, we got a year to prepare. We have 364 days. We're going to be ready. Okay. Oh, you know, I'm coming back. Oh man. If, if y'all will have us, we'll be back. Man. All right. Open up to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. I want to tell you a story while you're turning there from the olden days, a long time ago. It used to be before the interwebs that you could pay money and every day someone would bring to your house a folded up wad of paper and chuck it at your front door. <laughs> and written on this paper was the news of the day. And you would take this paper and read it. They were called newspapers. <laughs> one day I was reading one of these newspapers, as they were known, called the Washington Post. And I came across an article that intrigued me. This article contained the findings of a major research study. Already, I can't keep a straight face on this. I'm trying to build this up like this is real. It was real. It was a real article. This is a real major medical research study. Something like, if I remember right, about a million dollars went into this medical research study. They took a year to conduct this study. They set up a lab. They recruited doctors, got psychiatrists involved. They had medical research volunteers who were being paid for their time. They divided those volunteers up into a control group and an experimental group. This is it's like real science, people. And here is what they found from this study. This was reported, Washington Post is a major newspaper. So this was reported with a straight face in the newspaper. They found that eating ice cream 
makes people happy. <laughs> Spent a million dollars. Took them a year to figure this out. I thought, for, my first thought was, I could have told you that for like half that much money. <laughs> right? I would have, it would have cost you nearly so much. I could have given you this news. And I've been thinking about that article for a long time. Not only because it was totally absurd. I mean, everybody knows eating ice cream will make you happy. It makes me happy. But I got to thinking, why would somebody write that article? Why would somebody conduct that study? What would make somebody spend a million dollars and take a year worth of time to try to figure out, does this make people happy? I think people want to know how to be happy, right? People are on a quest for happiness. All of us, deep down within, have a longing to be happy. It's very simple and straightforward human desire that we all share. We want to be happy. Tons of money, gazillions of hours are spent every year by people trying to find happiness in all sorts of things. And a massive amount of human behavior can be explained by this desire for happiness. So maybe, maybe one person eats junk food and plays video games all day because he thinks it will make him happy. Another person swears never to eat junk food and instead exercises all the time because she thinks that will make her happy. Some people long for possessions, for stuff, for toys, because they think a new iPhone or a shopping spree at the mall will make them happy. And other people long for status. They want fame. They want reputation. They want to be known. They want to be somebody because they think that will make them happy. Maybe some of y'all have a derivative of that. Maybe some of y'all came to this retreat hoping to get attention, hoping to get noticed by others because you thought that would make you happy. Some of you came here hoping not to get noticed because you thought attention being drawn to you one way or the other would make you unhappy. Some of y'all love routine. Some of you like the same thing every day because you feel like the, you, you cherish the predictability and the comfort of knowing what's next. That makes you happy. Other people are more spontaneous and they're always planning, cooking up some new idea, some event or some outing. There are all kinds of ways that we seek happiness. There was a philosopher named Blaise Pascal and he said, all men seek happiness. All men seek happiness. This is his observation of the world. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man and woman. This is the motive of every action and every man. And so the question this pushes each one of us to answer, if we are going to think about this topic of happiness, if we hear this quote from Blaise Pascal, that should make us ask the question, where do I find happiness? That's a question for each of you. Where do you find happiness? Where do you look for happiness? Where are you searching for happiness? Where do you hope to find it? It's not, that's not a hard question to answer. Probably most of you, something comes to mind right away. It's what you daydream about when you have a few minutes. It's what you think about when you are supposed to be doing school or work or something else. It's, it's where you run to when you are tired or sad or discouraged. So where do you look for happiness? Everyone looks for and longs for happiness. 
but not everyone knows where to find it. But you know who does? You know who does. Solomon, the preacher. He knows where to find happiness. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, this book that he has written for graduates, for young people, for soon-to-be graduates, at the end of this book, he tells us where to find happiness. Happiness in the right things. Happiness that lasts. Happiness that is not worn away by the disappointments and difficulties of life in this fallen world. What he has to offer us, we might even call something more than happiness. We might call it joy. Sometimes some people will make a a tight distinction. They might say, well, happiness is one thing and joy is another. And that's fine. And, and maybe in another message we would do that. But for today, I'm just using those two words interchangeably because I think we all know what we mean by happiness and joy. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read Ecclesiastes 11, starting in verse 7, down through the beginning of chapter 12. And then we're going to jump over most of chapter 12 to the very end of chapter 12. So Ecclesiastes eleven seven. Follow along with me as I read, and then we're going to pray. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity." Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the, de- the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And now we're going to jump down to verse 13, the very end. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for Solomon. Thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. We pray this morning that you would help us to see with our eyes, to hear with our ears, and to set our hearts on all that you show to us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, who we love with all our hearts. Amen. So these verses tell us in poetic ways how to find happiness and if you aren't sure exactly what they mean we're going to walk through this together and see how do you find happiness how what is the secret here to being happy so if you are taking notes the first way to find happiness number one is to look to look for joy look for joy Want to find joy? Want to find happiness? You have to know where to look. The key to this section is a very simple command that shows up in verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Very straightforward. I did some fancy study on the Hebrew, the original language of this verse, and I discovered that what that word rejoice means... In plain English, 
Rejoice means be happy. It means find joy. It means go get it. You might be scratching your head like, wait. The question is, how do you find joy? And the answer is rejoice. How do I be happy? Be happy? That's, wait, that's the answer? It seems like a cheat. It seems like we just short-circuited something here. Well, how does that work? Well, the way to find joy is to choose to rejoice. Joy, happiness, is a choice. This is an important thing for young people to hear. If you are the kind of teenager, and I actually, I'm, I think it's so wonderful. I, don't, I haven't met any of you, I think, like this. But if you are the kind of teenager who sometimes is tempted to live a sullen, withdrawn, kind of sad life, these verses are for you. If, you. if you can be tempted to live pouty and moody, kind of withdrawn and sullen and grumpy, people have to give you space in the morning because you're hard to live with. Well, something's wrong. That's not acceptable to God. God is not sympathetic with that. It turns out that God is a very happy God. We serve a happy God. When you think about God, do you think of him? He is a happy God. He looks at his creation that he has made and he loves it. He looks at his people and he loves them because of Jesus. He is a happy God. And he is happy when his people are happy in him and in his gifts. And so young people, it says right here, young people are supposed to be happy in God. I'm not making this up. This isn't just my preference for how you would live. It's right here in Ecclesiastes 11. And joy is a choice. Now, I realize that for some of you, this might be surprising. Maybe you've never really thought about where emotions like joy and happiness come from. Where do those feelings come from? Maybe you've always thought that those emotions are just there. And there's nothing much you can do them. It's sort of do about them. It's sort of like an automatic reaction. You know, you go to the doctor and he hits your knee with that little hammer and your leg kind of twitches and you eat ice cream and you feel happy and it's just the way it works and there's nothing you can do about it. But it turns out that's not how it works. Your circumstances come and go. Your feelings are not just an automatic response. We are actually called to obey God with our feelings as much as we are called to obey God with our words and our actions. And this really serves us as we start trying to press that out into the details of real life. When you are tired from a marathon school week, you've had papers to write and tests to take, and then you had to work a late shift on Saturday night, and then you have to get up early on Sunday morning to go work in the nursery or help with setup at church, you can choose that morning to have joy. If you work in fast food and you have a customer who is rude to you and complains to your manager about what a sorry job you did and they want you to be fired on the spot, you can still choose joy. You can choose in that moment to be happy, to say, look, I misunderstood that customer's order. I'm going to do what I can to make it right. I'm going to go back, right back to work with a happy heart. It works like this. Here's the secret to it. It works like this. As you start to do the joy, you start to feel the joy. That's what is amazing about this. It works in two directions, right? What is inside of us comes out, right? You guys know how this works. And Jesus says, this is, if you have anger in your heart and the circumstances are conditioned just right or just wrong, anger comes out of your heart. If you have joy in your heart, the joy comes out of your heart. So stuff goes that direction. We all know how that works, right? But it goes the other way too. If you refuse to complain, 
and choose to smile and choose to be grateful and choose to think about others, then that will begin to actually change the way you feel about your circumstances. What we do, facial expression, words, feelings, thoughts, it works from the outside in as well. Now, I want to be real clear. This isn't just like turn that frown upside down, fake it till you make it, kind of like just, that's not it. It takes faith to obey God with our emotions. This is an expression of faith towards God saying, I know that God is good and does good. And even in this difficult circumstance, I am on the lookout for how he is good and does good for me. And I am putting my faith in that truth and choosing to rejoice in goodness that I don't even see yet. But I know it's there because God is good and does good. And as we begin to obey outwardly with our actions and our words, we'll begin to experience the good fruit of that, of feeling those emotions inwardly. Those emotions, they work from the outside in. So if you want happiness, choose happiness. Do the joy to feel the joy. And this verse also calls, well, I'd love to say us. It, it calls us to rejoice while we're young. Well, it calls you to rejoice in your youth while you are young. Did you notice how much of this command is directed to young people? Look at verse 8 again. Or verse 9, he says, rejoice, O young man. That's it, in verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. 3,000 years ago, there wasn't bold and underlined and italic font to make things pop out. You couldn't put it in red or make it flash. It's not how it worked back then. So if you wanted to get your point across, you said it. You said something multiple times. Repetition is meant to grab our attention. So young people, do you hear that? Do you hear? He is hammering home. Those of you who are young, listen up. Solomon wants your attention with this. In your youth, in your youth, in your youth. Learn this now because this will be much harder to learn later. Have you ever met somebody, a, a, a grumpy, bitter, hardened old person, and you just thought, ugh, I don't want to end up like that. Well, learn these lessons now and you won't. Now is the time to learn habits of joy. And he tells us more about how to do it. He wants us to know, Solomon wants us to know that there is assistance for this all around us. And so look at verse 7 when he says, Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. It's one of those verses, it's a simple little verse and it's easy. If you're doing one of these read through the Bible in a year programs, it'd be easy to just blow past this verse and not think about it. Light is pleasant, uh, excuse me, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. How many of you got up one of these days and went over and saw the sunrise over here? Oh man. Okay, right or wrong? Was that sweet? Was that pleasant? Oh my word. That was, and then some, right? That was amazing. We live in a little town, my boys and I, we live in a little town right outside of Louisville called Peewee Valley. Um, it's a funny name for our community. A peewee is a little bird, a little tiny bird. Um, it's a funny name for our community because there are no peewees in Peewee Valley. And the entire community is built on top of a ridge. No peewees, no valley. Let's call it Peewee Valley. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. 
We have no valley. We have no peewees. What we do have are sunrises. And something about the lay of the land, where our yards is, we get these incredible sunrises every morning. And so it felt like a little bit of home for me to wake up the last two days and look at them like, whoa, more sunrises. I love it. The cloud cover, the timing, the colors, the way they change minute to minute, different every day, almost every day is breathtaking. It's a daily reminder to us of God's goodness, the beauty that he has baked into creation for our joy. It's right there for the taking. And you actually don't have to get up early to see this. You can see this throughout the day. Today, we're going to enjoy another beautiful day. Sky, trees, there's going to be a drive home. There's going to be a lot to, to, we're just marveling on the way down here. The terrain is amazing. Look at what God has done. We talked the other day about food, how we can use food to do this. That, I, I brought a cup of orange juice in with me. Because I was thinking about orange juice. What a gift from God orange juice is. It was so good I drank it all. So I, didn't even, I couldn't even bring it up with me. But John Piper actually has an article entitled How to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God. Could there be like a more John Piper title of an article? In this article, he says that something as simple as a glass of orange juice, one of the greatest of life's delights, becomes a way to praise God as our creator when we receive that orange juice as a gift from God and then give thanks for it. Here's what he says in that article. The word of God teaches us that the juice, listen to this, even our strength to enjoy it, excuse me, strength to drink it, is a free gift of God. The prayer is our humble response of thanks from the heart. Believing this truth in the word and offering thanks in prayer is one way we drink orange juice to the glory of God. Drink orange juice to the glory of God. Chew gum to the glory of God. Eat a burger to the glory of God. Cocoa Krispies to the glory of God. Ice cream to the glory of God. Can I get an amen? Um, even though this world, listen, it's, this world is ruined by sin and tainted and wrecked. Sin has ruined everything. Ice cream melts. Well, mine doesn't. It doesn't sit there long enough to melt. But even so, even in a world wrecked, Think about this. This world groans. That sunrise we saw this morning is not a fraction as beautiful as it could be if sin had not entered the world. It says that sunrise this morning, that valley, that sun coming up, those clouds, that mist down in the valley, it groans under the weight and the burden of sin. How glorious will it be when Christ comes back and remakes it all without the stain of sin? Whew. I'm getting into my revelation side of things a little bit there. Maybe that's for next year. But think about what he's given us. We are surrounded by mercies and blessings every day. He gave us swimming. He gave us chocolate. He gave us baseball and bacon. He gave us Chipotle and the Chronicles of Narnia. He gave us milkshakes and puppies and friendship and laughter so that we might give thanks and enjoy his gifts. All of these are aids to our happiness. He wants to help us be happy if we will have eyes to see. You see this again in the New Testament way later in James chapter 1, verse 17. James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So my pastor, C.J. Mahaney, he says of this verse, it's like going for a walk in the rain. It says that God's gifts are, they're coming down 
And if you go for a walk in the rain, you cannot help but be hit by raindrops. It's the same way. We walk out those doors, even before we get to those doors, we cannot help by being hit by the gifts of God that he is raining down on our heads. All it takes from us is the faith to have eyes to see them and the gratitude to thank God for them. Now, you may not wake up every morning feeling amazed about the gift of a nice bed. Now, you probably will tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, all the dads and moms are like, yeah, I actually will tomorrow. Um, we don't normally spring out of bed with a catalog of the blessings that surround us and hearts just bursting with thanksgiving to God. We have to work at this. We have to learn to do this. And so we have to choose to rejoice. But the more that we do it, the more we actually speak our gratitude out loud and pray our thanksgiving to God, the easier it gets. And the, the more we have eyes to see. Once, once you begin to see this, once you begin to walk around and have eyes to see this, pretty soon it's like you can't help but see it. It's everywhere. You walk around and everything is a gift. There are gifts all around us if only we have eyes to see them. This pastor and theologian named David Gibson, he says, we need to start small because if we do not find joy in the little things of life, we are unlikely to find it in the big things. So let's start with gratitude. Let's learn to give thanks for all these small gifts so that we can also then learn to give thanks for the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. If we are not grateful for the small gifts that he sends us, are we likely to be grateful, to even recognize the greatest gift of all? The, where are the words? The, the, the gift of Jesus. Because once you start there, that, once you crack that door open, the gift of Jesus, what all does that mean? Well, there is forgiveness of sin. There is the hope of heaven. There is fellowship with God through the Spirit. There is being joined to other believers in a church. There is adoption into God's family. There is conviction of sin. There is God's word that guides us all because of Jesus. And we could go on and on. The gifts of God through Christ are unending. And if we don't start by small, by, by being grateful and thankful for the little things, the many different gifts that God has given us in this life, we will never have eyes to see all the gifts that God has given us in Christ. And Jesus came to bless us and to help us find happiness. John 10, 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Is that how you think about Jesus? That Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. He says, Jesus, I want you to be happy. I want you to find joy. I want it to overflow out of you in thanksgiving and love for God. So if you want to be happy, you need to know where to look. Learn to look for joy. You also need to learn to listen. So if you're taking notes, Number one, we look for joy. If you want to be happy, number two, you have to learn to listen. Listen to your conscience. If you want to be happy, you have to learn to listen to your conscience. And this is particularly in verse 9, the second half of verse 9. He says, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. What does that mean exactly? Those are some tricky, tricky sentences there. What is he talking about? I think if I could translate that just into very simple, straightforward English, it would say something like, want to be happy? Live with a clean conscience. 
You know what a conscience is, right? I think everybody, I hope everybody knows what a conscience is, but in case you're not totally sure, it seems a little vague, God has put a conscience in every one of us. It's that little voice that you hear that approves when you do well and disapproves when you don't. A conscience is a moral compass. It's a guide to right and wrong. Sometimes in the cartoons, you'll see little shoulder angel and shoulder devil sitting there kind of like, hey, go this way. No, don't go that way. Um, It's a little like that, except there's just one voice that guides us. In my pickup truck, I have a GPS in the dashboard and I come to a fork in the road and it tells me which way to go. And it's great. If I follow that, good. If I don't, well, I won't get where I'm supposed to go. And a conscience is a little bit like that. It's a God-given GPS. It's a guide to right and wrong to take us where we need to go. A conscience is also like a rear view mirror. As long as we're talking about trucks, it evaluates the decisions we've made in the past and gives a thumbs up or a thumbs down. It approves or disapproves what we've done so that we feel good about it when our actions conform to God's word and we feel badly when we know that we've disobeyed. Now that GPS in my truck, I can turn it off. Just one button turns off. It's not that simple to turn off a conscience, but it can be done. If you ignore your conscience long enough, if you stifle it, if you lie to yourself, you call good, bad, and bad good long enough, that conscience will eventually give up and let you do what you want to do. But it will never totally go away. It will never completely quit because it's God and his word that make it go. Now look, for me, this idea of conscience, it's, this is important to me because this factored significantly into me becoming a Christian. When I was in high school, I lived a double life. When I was your age, I lived a double life. Outwardly, I was a good church kid, came on Sundays all spiffed up. I had great answers to questions in our youth group, but I lied to my parents a lot. I didn't tell them where I was going, who I was hanging out with, movies I watched, music I listened to. I didn't try to hide from them my relationship with my girlfriend. At the time, I thought, this is working. I've got this under control. I can handle this. It's going to be okay. I also had a problem. I couldn't sleep. My my, my, my conscience wouldn't let me. There was this voice. I would lay down. I'd be so tired. I I was so anxious. I might get caught. What would the consequences be? What happens if, if I get caught? And this isn't right. I don't think I should be doing this, but I like doing what I want to do. I don't want to have to give things up. I want to be able to make my own decisions and go my own way and rule my own life. And I would just lay there for hours. It got so bad for me, I couldn't sleep. I I eventually resorted to keeping a copy of the Federalist Papers next to my bed. For some of you young people, if you don't know what that is, that's a collection of essays by the founding fathers about how government should be run. If you need to resort to the Federalist Papers to sleep, it's bad. It was bad. That's how persistent my conscience was. The only way I could get around my conscience was to drown it out with some dudes who wrote 200 years ago about the rule of law. And I expect, I imagine there are some of you who understand right now what I felt back then. 
I have been a pastor long enough, so I've been a human long enough to know that in a group this size, there are some of you that think you have people fooled. And there are some of you whose conscience is nibbling at you, bothering you, chirping at you, maybe screaming at you, saying, Stop! What are you doing? Maybe you are troubled and weary and anxious and even depressed because you have been trying for some time to stifle your conscience. If you are hiding your sin, your conscience will not let you be happy. There's no amount of ice cream that will make up for it. I don't know who you are. I'm not the Holy Spirit. You know who you are. And God knows who you are. And there is real hope for you. If I, who needed the Federalist Papers to sleep because I was going so far against my conscience, if I found hope, you can too. In the winter of 1997, when I was a sophomore in college, I experienced real conviction. When I started spending time with friends who were real Christians, I suddenly got exposed to the genuine article, the real deal. People who daily read their Bibles and prayed. People who genuinely loved each other and served one another. People who were committed to purity and to holiness. And my conscience suddenly sprang to life. And I could see in an instant, like there was a moment I could see, I can, I can picture where I was. I could just see instantly, my life is a fraud. My life is a shriveled little raisin of a fake compared to the feast of real Christianity that I see out in front of me. And so I did the only thing I could do. I repented. I prayed. I asked God's forgiveness. And then I went to my dad and I confessed my sins to him. I said, Dad, I have been lying for years about where I've been going, what I've been doing, what I've been spending my money on, what I've been watching, what I've been listening to, my girlfriend, all of this. I laid it all out. I dragged it all into the light. <laughs> I slept so good that night. I slept really good that night. I started getting discipled by my dad and by my pastor. I'd been finding ways to avoid that for a long time. I started getting up early on my own to read my Bible and to pray. All of a sudden, there was this hunger, like, I need this book. This book tells me what to go. All of a sudden, where, where to go? I found my, I found my conscience. I, I was learning. My conscience was, was being shaped and directed by this book. And you know what I felt? You know what I experienced more than anything? Joy and happiness. I felt like somebody had dragged a beach ball to the bottom of a pool and suddenly let it go. And that beach ball just went rocketing to the surface and would never be held down again. That was more than 20 years ago. And I think my wife, I think my boys, I think friends in church, I think they would tell you that I am a happy, a joyful man. And it goes back because to, to that, to learning to listen to my conscience. It's not because I'm just sort of temperamentally just such a cheerful dude. It's the Lord worked in me. It's the amazing grace of God in my life. He gave me grace and help to respond, to repent, and to listen to my conscience. If I could learn that, if I could do that, 
The Lord wants to do that for you too. And so if that's you, if some of you, if you have been trying to keep that voice down, trying to shut that voice up, I don't want to listen to that anymore. I want to do my own thing. I want to go my own direction. I hope you'll follow the other half of my example too, which is to repent, to confess, to walk in the light, to find joy. So we find happiness and we find joy by looking for joy, by listening to our conscience. We make all of that permanent. This is your third point if you want to take notes. All of that becomes permanent and lasting if we do the third thing, which is to walk. We listen. No, we look, we listen, and we walk. We walk in the fear of God. So now we're going to jump to the very last two verses of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. He says, the end of the matter. We haven't had time to read through this whole book. I hope you will. I hope in the next week or so you will sit down. Here's what I'd recommend. It won't take you that long. Maybe 40 minutes. You could probably sit down and read Ecclesiastes front to back in one sitting. It's amazing if you do that because you'll see, man, he has tried it all. And he gets very all, all the way to the end here. Very honest, very straightforward. He says, here's the end of the matter. I've tried everything. I've probed every little cranny of the universe. And, and the only way to find happiness, the only way to make it last, the only way to make it stick is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. You can sum up the entire book of Ecclesiastes in those six words. Fear God and keep his commandments. If you want to be happy, walk in the fear of God. We have to learn to fear God. Jerry Bridges is a writer, a Christian writer who died just a couple years ago, he, he had a book called The Joy of Fearing God. It's a very strange title for a book. The Joy? Right? The Joy of Fearing God? But it makes more sense the more you think about it. Look, we like fear. People, strangely enough, like fear. Right? That explains zombie movies. It explains river monster shows. It explains roller coasters. It explains YouTube videos of guys in wingsuits flying past giant rock outcroppings. If you haven't seen those, look for them. They're really cool, but scary. Talking about the fear of God is a tricky thing because we've come to associate fear with those kind of cheap thrills. The fear of God is not easily compared to something you, that feeling you get watching something on YouTube. Something a lot more than that. God has made us to fear. That is baked into us. It's for our safety. If your heart skips a beat when you narrowly avoid a car crash or get a little too close to the edge of the, the cliff over here or a spider drops down right in front of you, that is an impulse from God that is meant to protect you. And the fear of God is the biggest protection of them all. But it can be hard to define easier to describe i think it's kind of like this have you ever been outside in a thunderstorm and lightning hit very close to you like really close have you ever had that uh <laughs> i've had that happen to me a couple times when it's hit really close to me and if that's happened to you even if it hasn't you can probably imagine what that feels like there is this blinding bright light and Ears, your ears are just ringing from the noise. I've, I've before, my skin has, I've been close on, my skin tingled from just the electricity in the air. Your chest gets all wobbly from the shock wave of the thunder. And then your heart is just racing 
as you realize how much danger you are in without even knowing it. You're just like sprinting in full-on panic mode. I gotta get in the house. The fear of God is a little bit like that. And I say just a little bit because that is, we need to see the power of God. Thunderstorms are a gift from God because they show us the power of God. And the fear of God is a little bit like the respect that we should have for, for lightning. But it's more than that because fear of God, God is, a, God is a personal God who reveals himself in power and in justice and in judgment, but also in love and mercy and kindness and patience. The fear of God combines the knowledge that God is more powerful than any thunderstorm with the knowledge that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we come to a God who is exceedingly dangerous and yet welcomes us as a father, draws children into his lap that tenderly. That's what the fear of God is. The fear of God pushes us towards obedient action. The fear of God restrains us from sin because the fear of God includes the certainty that God sees all things, that he cares about what we do, whether we obey or not, and that he will act to make things right. And so God calls us then to walk in the fear of God. Now, after three days of being together. We have heard the gospel preached several times. We have heard about the free offer of forgiveness through the singing, through the preaching, through conversations. We have heard that Jesus saves sinners. If there are any of you who have not yet come to Jesus in faith and repentance, think about that thunderstorm. It is nothing compared to the wrath of God. What could you be waiting for? What are you holding on that is worth keeping? to risk that thunderstorm. Whatever it is that you want more than Jesus, the ambitions, the possessions, the relationships, the reputation, all of that is a chain around your neck that will drag you to hell. But what Jesus offers outweighs anything that you might be hanging on to. He offers you a clear conscience and forgiveness of sins and a friendship that is closer than any you will find on this earth. And the way forward in that is simple. To pray to God, tell Him that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the only way of salvation, and to ask His forgiveness for your sins. And ask for His help to obey. And then tell your parents about what you prayed, what you repented of, what you're resolving, how you're resolving to obey God instead. Resolve to fear God, to keep his commandments. And don't wait. Please don't think, well, there's time for that. You might think, uh, Steve Whitaker's story, he didn't, he didn't do this till he was a sophomore in college. If I wait that long, I can have a couple more years of kind of doing my own thing. I can, I can, there's some fun out there for me. No, why would you miss out? on the freedom and the joy, the real happiness. Why, why settle for the counterfeit when the real thing is set right before you? For those of us who have already professed faith in Jesus Christ, these verses are a reminder to us. They remind us how to do it, how to live for Christ, 
how to walk this out, to look for joy, to listen to your conscience, to fear God and keep his commandments. So as we go out from here, I'm praying for all of us. I'm praying that there will be lasting fruit, an enduring effect from this time together, that as we go out from here, we might find real happiness, that we might, we might see all around us the gifts that God has given us. They come from the giver, and we respond with thanksgiving. That we might have freshly clean consciences, remembering again that our sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ, cast into the depths of the ocean, thrown behind his back, removed as far as the east is from the west, blotted out of the book of heaven because of Jesus, so that we might fear God and keep his commands. If you want to be happy, look for joy, listen to your conscience, and walk in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to be happy. And you put it right here in front of us. It is no secret. You have not hidden it from your children. You want us to be happy. And you have made a way for us to be happy. To find joy that lasts and that endures and that overcomes every difficulty, every discouragement, every disappointment, every trial, every suffering in this life, joy that lasts and lasts and gives to others and overflows because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray especially for these young people. Father, teach them. Teach them. Please teach them in the days and the weeks and the months and the years to come. Teach them to look for joy. Teach them to listen to their conscience. And teach them to walk in the fear of God, that they might have real happiness, that they might love you with their heart, with their soul, with their mind, and with their strength. Father, as we draw this time to a close, we confess we are amazed at your grace, that we would be here, we who rejected you, we who were sinners, we who who rebelled against your law, that you would draw us at a time like this, that we might hear from your word, and we give you thanks. Jesus, thank you. Father, thank you. Spirit, thank you. Hear our thanks. And grow our joy in the gospel. For your good, for, for your glory, and for our good, for the sake of your name in the world. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, whom we love with all our hearts. Amen. Amen.